take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1. This week I had somebody come to me and let me know that uh, the church was getting ready to buy something. Um, and uh, the process was in process. And uh, so uh, they, what we were getting ready to buy was a nativity scene. This story was just too good for me not to share with you today. So uh, we're going to buy this nativity scene, and it was going to be a great deal. We're going to get it for 50% off. And uh, so the process was in process, and suddenly I was confronted by this same person who told me about it in the first place and said, "Uh, deal's off. I said, okay, why is that? And they said, well, there's a problem with this nativity scene. Uh... We were going to get it for 50% off because the baby Jesus was missing out of it. (laughs) And I thought to myself, that's just about right. Actually, what I thought about that was that so much fits modern approach to Christmas. You know, I mean, and actually there's also a theological truth that ties to that. And so it fits the modern approach to Christmas in that... Uh, it is not unusual at all for people to approach Christmas without the baby Jesus there. And I know that that's part of modern Christendom's cause. Uh, so many people are on the bandwagon of, you know, keep Christ in Christmas. And uh, that just, that was a fitting real-life parable of what you get with Christmas with no baby Jesus. That just, I mean, that ought to be the way most of them are sold, the way most people celebrate Christmas. Uh, I don't recommend that you have one like that. Uh, We didn't get that one. But uh, the other part of it, the theological element to that, I think, bears repeating also. If you have it with the baby Jesus and the nativity is worth X number of dollars, but you don't have the baby Jesus in it, now it's worth half as much. That's about right, too. When you get right down to it, if you take Jesus out of Christmas, then it's about half of what it's blown up to be when you get right down to it. We've been looking into that nativity scene, not the one without the baby in it, but the one that uh, occurred in Bethlehem so many years ago now. And I've been trying to encourage you to look down into that nativity scene and see the face of that baby and to see what you're really seeing with that child. Colossians chapter 1 helps us with that. What Paul is doing is addressing the church, the Christian people who are at the city of Colossae, and particularly in that church there, about some of the heresies that are coming up, and he needs to correct some of the way, that, uh, some of the teaching that is occurring in that area. And, uh, and he uses verses 15 through 20 thereabouts um, as, well, it's an instructional tool but he borrows it out of early church tradition, and it's a Christian hymn. And I mean that in the truest sense of the word, Christian. It is a hymn, that's H-Y-M-N. We know about those in the early service, we don't know about those in this service too much. A hymn, it's an old way of singing truth. Uh, And um, in that early church, they used that as a teaching thing. And so in these verses, verses 15 through 20 thereabouts, Paul uses, he pulls that Christian educational worship device called to him. He pulls it in and it gives us these key truths about who Jesus is. 
But Paul also makes a turn. As a matter of fact, in our message today, we find that Paul takes that hymn and he takes it a step further. Let's read this together and see what he's saying because he's taking us to the crux of the matter when it comes to who Jesus is. That baby in the manger, Paul would say to us, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now what we've said already, that baby in the manger, he is the image of the invisible God. God in the flesh. He is the firstborn of all creation, he says. Verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I'm going to stop there for a minute. We'll be at verse 18 now in just a second. But I want to make sure that we get all of that together. What Paul is saying in verses 15 through 17 is that this Jesus, as this time of the year we come to a manger and we look into that face of that little baby, this little baby is God himself. He's not like God. He's not a good representation of what God might be like. Paul says he is the image, the manifest representation of the living God. And who is that? He goes on to say that this same baby who is God in the flesh was the one who was instrumental. He is the agent of all of creation. And well, a couple of weeks ago we went to Genesis 1 and we went to John chapter 1 and we see in those verses all put together that this Jesus, this baby in the manger is God himself who was also the agent of all of creation. All that is, is because of him. That's a pretty significant baby, don't you think? So that being true, why would you want a nativity scene without a Jesus in it? All you really have is a crowd, it's a poor crowd even with that, hanging around a manger because there's no place to stay. But when Jesus enters that picture, everything changes. The image of the invisible God. But I want to zero in on the next part of that because Paul says he is the firstborn of creation. We talked about that. And the word firstborn now resurfaces in this passage. So in verse 18, it says, And he, that is this Jesus that we've been talking about, that Paul has described in verses 15 through 17, he is the head of the body, the church. Let me just stop reading for a second. This is not the sermon. This is an aside, okay? But zero in on that one statement for just a second. And he is the head of the body, the church. That comes as a very disappointing, shocking truth to many people I've known through the years. Not in this church necessarily, but in other churches where people believe that they are God's gift to the church, that they are the head, they're the ones that make the decision. I hate to tell you this, but it's Jesus and it's his church. He is the head of the body, the church. And now that word surfaces again. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In the Greek language, that those two statements, beginning and firstborn from the dead, stand side by side. One explains the other. So firstborn now makes its second appearance in this passage. And with this verse, Paul changes the focus. 
Verses 15 through 17, Paul was emphasizing that Jesus was the first, the one of creation. Before all that was, he is. But now he's switching that. He's not talking about Jesus' role in creation. He's now talking about Jesus' role in redemption. It's a critical shift in what he's saying. It's one thing for us to believe that there is this God named Jesus, baby in a manger, grew to be a man. It's one thing for us to hold him up and say, yes, he is God. He is the agent of creation. All that is is because of him. And then we take him and we set him on a shelf and he hangs out there as the God of the universe. And if we're not careful, we relegate him to an also kind of status. Oh, yeah, he's also part of my life, but for the most part, I'm just going to do my thing here. A disconnected, uncaring God is not the picture of the God of this Bible. So not only is he the firstborn of creation, now Paul tells us and reminds us that this firstborn is also the firstborn from the dead. And we're going to have to kind of pull that discussion apart a little bit to get the full thrust of what Paul's saying. Let me finish reading the passage for the day. And he is the head of the body of the church... He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Well, I'd love to spend some more time there, but let's keep going. And though, or excuse me, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What in the world is Paul getting at? Well, let's take this firstborn from the dead phrase apart. I guess the first thing I want to emphasize is the dead part. Now, that might strike you as a little strange, but let, let, me, let me get at it this way with you. You remember a couple of weeks ago when I referenced Luke chapter 2, verse 19? That's the verse. You don't have to look there. I'll just tell you briefly what it says. That's the verse where the shepherds have come to see the Christ child in the manger. And Mary, it says, taken stock of all of that. And the last part of that verse says, and she pondered all of these things in her heart. And we talked a little bit about what Mary might have been thinking. I mean, given all that's happened, these angels have appeared to her and to Joseph, and now to the shepherds, and this baby has been born miraculously so, and she knows that better than anybody else. And so here she is sitting, looking down into this manger, seeing the face of this baby, and thinking the thoughts of a new mother. What's this baby going to be? We talked about that. But I, I want to add another situation with Mary to this picture. Don't take the time to turn there now either, but you can go look at it later. John chapter 19, verse 25, actually is a scene at the cross. And it's that passage that most of us are familiar with, that while Jesus is on the cross, he looks down and he sees his mother and he sees the apostle John, and he says, behold your son, son, behold your mother. We know that passage, but 
I want you to put yourself as best you can there in Mary's shoes at the foot of the cross. No longer is she the mother of a newborn infant with incredible potential. Now she's the mother of a convicted criminal who hangs on a cross, the Messiah, as she believed him to be, dying in front of her. What goes through a mother's mind at that point? Think of the difference between Mary at the side of this manger And Mary at the foot of the cross, what is she thinking as she looks up and sees the body of her son that is mangled beyond human comprehension? And all of those dreams and all of those promises and all of that messianic hope that was theirs tied into who they were, all of that comes to her and it's just like it's evaporating in front of her eyes. And her son, in agony, is dying in front of her. What goes through her mind at that point? My suspicion is that as she stood at the foot of the cross, she might have remembered the birth. Probably did. But I equally suspect that that mother at the side of that manger in her wildest dreams doesn't envision her son dying on a cross. You see, when it comes to infants, death doesn't usually enter the picture for us in a natural way. As a parent looking on the face of a newborn child, we don't tend to think about death there. Some of the hardest funerals I've ever done, I've done hundreds, maybe a thousand or more funerals through the years. And I've done them in all kinds of life situations. The hardest ones that I ever do are the funerals of parents of infants. A couple of years ago, during the Christmas season, I stood in a cemetery in South Texas. The funeral service for an infant who lived only minutes What do you say to a parent, to a mother, in that circumstance? What can you possibly say to move her beyond the grief and the loss of potential and the dreams of that baby? They brought that child out in a little casket smaller than a shoebox. My suspicion is, because we don't generally put death and infants together. It doesn't fit very well for us. My suspicion is that Jesus' death was not on Mary's mind while she was looking at him in that manger. But praise God, it was on God's mind. As he looked into the face of that newborn baby, death was in the future for him. Paul highlights that. For us, I don't want us to miss that. Don't miss how huge that statement is. Jesus, God in the flesh, was born to die. Get the picture. He is the image of the invisible God. He is God himself. He is the agent 
of creation. Let me say it this way. For Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, death was never an option before he came in human flesh. We don't need a God who dies, right? Wrong. That's exactly what we needed. But Jesus, who is eternal, now we think of eternity as from this point forward with no end. I can always add an extra day. My mind can sort of get eternity that way. I have a real hard time getting eternity the other way. That there was no point of beginning. Say it this way. There is never a day when Jesus was not already. Now, that, that, I get brain cramps with that. And as we go backwards, there was never a day that Jesus was not already. How in our greatest stretch of our mind can we imagine that God dying? And it took the miracle of birth as a human for it to even be possible for him. And even still our minds struggle with that concept. But the fact of the matter is, as Mary looked down at the face of that baby, she didn't see death, but God did. That was part of why he came in the first place. Better be glad for that. Because if it hadn't been for that, we'd all be without hope. So with that in mind, this thing about death is a big deal with Jesus. It's why he came in the first place. So let's look at the next term. The firstborn from the dead. All right, now firstborn I get... I have a son, firstborn, his name is Brandon. He will never be anything other than my firstborn. As much as his brother wishes he was the firstborn, it it, it ain't happening. It can't happen because there can only be one, right? He's first, right? You with me? Right, okay. So what does this mean when we say Jesus, Paul says Jesus is firstborn from the dead? Does that mean that he's the first one to die? Well, clearly no. If you don't, I mean, if you have struggle with that, go back and read the first five or six chapters of Genesis, and you'll you'll see a lot of people died before Jesus. So it can't mean that he's the first one to die. Maybe firstborn from the dead refers then to the resurrection. So we ask ourselves, was Jesus the first one to be resurrected from the dead? That seems to fit the sense better, but there's a problem with that. He's not. John chapter eleven. The story of Lazarus. What happened to Lazarus? He died. Okay? And then what happened to Lazarus? Jesus raised him from the dead. He resurrected. If that's not enough for you, you go to Mark chapter 5, the story of Jairus and his daughter, and Jesus raised her from the dead. So we can't really say that Jesus, as the firstborn from the dead, is the first one to be resurrected. So that doesn't fit. What in the world is Paul talking about here? It's a huge statement. That's why I'm spending so much time on it this morning. Because it is a statement that drives us to a crisis in our lives. He's not the first one to die. He's not the first one to be resurrected. But Jesus was the first one to be alive and then dead. Died on a cross. And then resurrected. Never to die again. That's the key. And you know what that means for us? You know why that's such a big deal? Jesus was alive. That fits all of us. We've all been alive before this morning anyway. And then we will die. It's a closed system. Nobody gets out alive. So alive and dead to be resurrected. 
Only Jesus to this point in history, never to die again. That's a big deal because Jesus is the one to conquer death. Lazarus was alive and died and was resurrected, but he died again. Jairus' daughter, same way, she died again. Jesus, to this moment, is still alive. At the right hand of the Father in heaven, making intercession for us, Scripture tells us, He's alive. I know that as Baptists, we don't do jumping up and down and shouting and amen and that kind of stuff, but that's a place to do it. Because Jesus is alive. I know that's an Easter thing for us. Yeah, I know some of you sitting out there going, Preacher, that's Easter. You're getting ahead of yourself. Your calendar's jacked up. Let me tell you something. Easter, hear me very carefully now, okay? You can call me a heretic, at least quote me correctly. Easter doesn't mean a thing without Christmas. If it weren't for the miraculous birth of this God-man named Jesus... Easter doesn't mean anything. Because Easter then is just another hollow tradition of somebody who died and legend surrounded him. But that's not the case. It's the Son of God. God himself who's born, who goes to a cross to die. Paul talks about that. I'm going to get to that in just a second. The fact of the matter is, if it wasn't for Christmas, Easter wouldn't mean a thing. But you know what? If it wasn't for Easter, Christmas wouldn't mean a thing. It'd be just another great story of how something happened and people gathered around the story and it was a wonderful thing. But Jesus came to die. Firstborn from the dead. Not too long ago I had somebody come up to me. We were getting ready for Christmas. And they said, because this, in case you're visiting you don't know, uh, this is my first Christmas season here. I'm finishing out six months here. Some of you didn't think I'd last, I know, but I'm more obstinate than you thought. But uh, because you don't know how I do things year-round yet, somebody came up to me and said, you're not one of those preachers who's going to preach on Easter during Christmas season, are you? And I thought, yeah, <laughs> actually a little bit I am. And by the way, I'm also one of those preachers who are going to preach about Christmas a little bit at Easter time. You know why? Because one doesn't mean much without the other. Either time. God in the flesh stooped down to his creation. And the one who spoke the word and all of the worlds came into order. Took on flesh. And that baby in a manger... Even though his mother never dreamed he would die the way he did, from the moment that he drew his first breath was on a march to the cross. Anybody in their right mind would hear that and say, Why? That makes sense. Why would God go to the trouble to take on flesh only to die like that? Paul helps us with that. The way this is written in Greek language, he is the beginning, the first one from the dead. Those both fit. They side by side. They balance the scales together, in other words. One describes the other one. The beginning of what? 
Well, what, what we need to see from this is what I'm talking about here. Jesus, the first one who was died and resurrected never to die again. That is the beginning. All of history turns at that point. From that moment forward, something happened in the human condition. And Paul explains that for us as we go forward. The firstborn from the dead. The next word there is the word that. The Greek language, that is a word that introduces a clause that gives us the reason for what happened. So why did this happen? Paul very clearly says he took on flesh. He's the firstborn from the dead so that in everything, that means all of life and everything that else happens, he might be, now what's the word preeminent mean? It means, let's put it in our church terminology, it means Lord. First. Matter of fact, the term is proto something. It's the word first. First of its kind. Above all. Now we've already seen that in the first 15 through 17, first part of this passage, Jesus is Lord of creation. Now he's Lord of redemption. He is just Lord, period. That's a good time if you happen to, Baptist or not, to say, that's right, preacher. (laughs) Now if I have to coach you to it, it's just not nearly as good. But it's okay to get excited about good news, okay? Cowboys won last night. Woohoo! I like that. All right? It's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle the Cowboys won in December. I don't mind being happy about that, but I get jacked up, excited about what Jesus did for me. He is Lord. Why? Because all of history turns on him being firstborn from the dead. Nobody else did or could defeat death. Only he could do it, and he did. That's good news. That changes everything about life. You know, our society gets locked up Let me rephrase that. We're fixated on health and longer living. We hear health professionals tell us all the time, you need to exercise and you need to eat right. Right? You sick of hearing that? I'm sick of hearing that. Why do they tell us that? So you can live longer. Let me give you a news flash. I don't want to live longer. I know. You, you think, well, some of you are thinking, I wish you wouldn't live longer either. I'm ready to go to lunch. Be quiet. Think, think about it for just a second. Based on what Jesus did, this passage emphasizes that. Is my life better here or there? Jesus Christ did something nobody else could do. It's a done deal. I'm going to get to the word reconcile in a minute. It's a key thing to this whole passage as far as I'm concerned. But before I ever get there, I want to make sure that we're on the same page together. Okay? I I do exercise. I know you find that hard to believe. I do. I try to eat right for the most part. I I don't mind living longer, but I'm not going to do all I can to sustain life here when I know that my life is going to kick up a notch or two or eleven when I get through here. I heard a... Uh, chaplain at a hospital years ago made this comment. We have medically learned 
how to extend life beyond the logical conclusion of living. Let that sink in a minute. I'll cripple it and slow it down so it can get a little more saturation for you. We have medically figured out how to extend life. In other words, our advancement in medicine helps people live longer. But the point of the chaplain was that we can sustain life now longer than the real ability to live the way we're supposed to live. Be honest with you, I don't want to spend my last days locked into a shell of a body tied to a hospital bed. For a Christian, there's much worse than dying because Jesus Christ came to give us life. And that life has that duration element to it. It is eternal in that it never dies. If we die and are resurrected as Scripture promises us, we will never die again. But that's only because of Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn of all creation and redemption. This is huge what Paul is saying to us here. And our fixation on living longer whether it's Ponce de Leon and his search for the fountain of youth, or you and running 400 miles a day so that your body can be fit, all of those things, if we're not careful, we get so fixated on living longer that we deny life in the process. Jesus' death, resurrection is the high point of history. Let me, let me say that with the right kind of emphasis. Jesus' death and resurrection is the high point of history. He is the firstborn from the dead. And here's my concern about that. We as Christian people like to compartmentalize our religion. And it's Christmas season, so let's hear some Christmas sermons and let's hear some Christmas music. And when it's Easter, let's hear some Easter sermons and let's hear some Easter music. And if we're not careful, we put those two things on the shelf until their season comes and we deny them the rest of the year. Jesus Christ, the baby in the manger, such a powerful baby he was. The one who came and changed all of history with his life and his death. That same Jesus is the one who's on the cross. And just like Mary, you're called to the side of the manger and to the foot of the cross and you have to make a decision, who is this guy? And Paul has done his best, I think, in these few verses to lay out for us that he is none other than the Son of God who was born in a miraculous way, lived a perfect, sinless life and died on the cross. But if the period to the sentence was at the died on the cross, we would all be hopeless still firstborn from the dead. This is huge for us. It reads so easily. We can read through it and just move right along. But you see, the problem is when you're confronted with the truth of it, it puts you in a crisis of belief. What do you do with this guy? If he is who Paul says he is, what do you do with this guy? There's something else I want you to see here before I close. Look at verse 18 and then again verse 20. He gives us the reason for this firstborn from the dead. 
That in everything he might be preeminent, that he might be Lord. And then he explains a little bit in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And then he talks about that a little bit. That word reconcile is an interesting term. Now most of us hear that and we think of reconciling our bank statements. And some of you are going, what does that mean, reconcile our bank statements? I talked to a guy one time, I said, what do you do when your bank statement comes? He said, well, I just usually kind of look at it and throw it away. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you're an idiot. In Christian love, you're an idiot for doing that, you know? Because if you don't check to make sure that the bank's not stealing, um, excuse me, that uh, the bank's records are the same as yours, you might have trouble in the financial end of your life. That means reconcile, we check it, and we make sure that it's right. This word reconcile, not exactly that thing. This word reconcile literally means to transfer from one state to a completely different state. Through him to reconcile to himself all things. To change from one state to a completely different state. This is tied back to Jesus and his resurrection. So let's put it all together now. Well, let's let Paul do it for us. You see, when I continued reading a minute ago, he talks about the state we were in. And then he gives us the state that we are in. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Did you get that? That's who we were. Now I'm smart enough to know in a crowd like this, that describes some of us as we are. Life without God in it is a bad way to live. I don't say that in judgment on you. I say that as a personal reflection and testimony of my own life. I tried to live without God in my life. You know what it created? Chaos and heartache and hopelessness to the nth degree. And Paul says, And you who once were alienated, that is from God, a holy God and a sinful man, what on earth are we to do? Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Boy, that captures my life. Verse 22 then he says, He, that is Christ, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Now here's the difference. In order to present you holy and blameless and above, above reproach before him. To move from being in one state to a completely different state. Why is Jesus' resurrection such a big deal? Because it's the only way you get out of the mess. I know you're Baptists. And I know we don't do amens and jumping up and shouting. That's a place to do it. Because without him, we're sunk. You want me to make that a little more personal? Without him, you're sunk. But praise God, even though Mary probably didn't have death on her mind when she looked into the face of that baby, God had death on his mind. And that baby came to die and be resurrected to reconcile you. My gosh. I think back on my life when I decided I would be God that's a horrible way to live it was horrible for me 
it was horrible for everybody that my life touched. But I praise God that Jesus Christ stepped into the mess, not as some little baby in a manger, but as the God of the universe who only he could affect. He stepped in and he said, I'm going to take you out of all that garbage and give you life. That's why this is a big deal. Paul won't leave us wallowing around in the garbage of life. He takes us to the cross and to the empty tomb. But you see, with that, he leaves us in a crisis of belief. What do you do with that? Bow your heads with me, if you would. Eyes closed for just a few moments. As you look into the manger scene and you see that baby, what do you see? This world in which we live during this time of the year specializes on half-price Christmas Christianity. Oh, you get lots of lights and ribbons and gifts, but no Jesus. Save your money because that won't do it for you. The face of that baby is none other than the face of God. And he came to die and to live again. And I know that in a room with this many people in it, somebody probably somebody's are hearing this message and something deep down inside of you is doing a hand mixer on your spirit and you just can't figure out why you're so uncomfortable right now. God is saying to you, this is good news for you. This Jesus died for you. And I don't know what's going on in your life. I can tell you from experience. If you don't have Jesus in your life, it's hard to make sense of life. And right now, because he rose from the dead, he is still alive. And he is saying to you, I got a better way for you to go i got a better life for you. Just trust me with that. If that's you today, right there where you are, I want to invite you to trust him. Just take him at his word. He says, come to me all of you who are weary and you're laboring through life and times are hard and I'll give you rest book of John he says I have come to give you life that will blow your mind so I encourage you today to put your trust in him as in your own words as best you can put it together you just say a simple prayer to him God I need you and I believe what this preacher has been saying I'm not even sure I understand it all but something in me tells me it's right and right now I put my trust in what I think I'm hearing and what I believe I want you to take me and give me that life that you
purchased for me on the cross. It's really not so much about saying the right words as much as it is about a heart that says, I need God, and this is the way I can get it. The only way is to trust Christ. And that's my invitation to you. In just a few moments, we're all going to stand. If that's a prayer that you're praying, I'm going to ask you to just slip out and come forward. We'll talk with you and kind of help you make sense of all of that. I'm not asking you to do anything crazy. Just respond to God who right now is working in your life. Some of us long since made a decision to trust Christ, but we've settled for a seasonal Christianity. We like Christmas because we can keep that baby in the manger. He didn't make any demands on us. The fact of the matter is he's got it every day, all day. We face that crisis of belief that says, what am I going to do with him? And the only real answer is you surrender to him. Maybe he's telling you right now, it's time to get your life back in order. You left me behind a long time ago. Recommit. This could be the best Christmas ever. Or the worst. Crisis of belief. What do you do with it? Let's stand together. Heads bowed, eyes closed. You come as God calls you.